If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm going to have to lower this because Chaz is much taller than I am. So looked funny. So Chaz, I apologize. You're going to have to raise this back up when we're done. So all right. Um, we are, we're going to be kind of looking at things a little bit different today. And um, as I was kind of preparing as far as what we were going to talk about today, um, the topic is, is love. Now, um, when, we, when it comes to Advent season, typically there's, there's four topics we always go over, and that's going to be hope, peace, love, and joy. Uh, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Frank actually spoke on hope, and a lot of it had to do with the difference between a false hope that we can have versus a true hope. And a lot of that was centered around a false hope is something that is more geared towards wishful thinking. Um, it's something that's probably not going to happen, but you really, really want it to happen. And the problem with that type of false hope is that it doesn't endure, and in fact, it often lets you down. But the true hope, um, what Frank kind of brought out here, had to do with uh, the Greek word, which translates to profound certainty. So the real hope that we have is the hope that we have in Jesus. And in terms of talking about Advent, that was Jesus coming down and being born. So it was that profound certainty of hope that we were able to trust in. Uh, last week, Mark spoke about peace, and when we looked kind of as he started his sermon, if you remember, uh, he started off with this kind of unique survey, and he was asking people about, okay, like, what is peace? Like, when you think of peace, like, what are some things that you look at? And the majority of the answers were, hey, just getting away from everybody and, like, being in the mountains or being on the beach. And it was the idea that peace comes from eliminating everyone else out of your life and just getting by yourself. But the peace that God has for us is something quite different that we're going to dive into a lot more today. Um, it's a lot more communal. It's about diving into the church. It's diving into your family, your friends, your neighbors. It's diving into community itself. Um, and it's not circumstantial. It's not based upon what's going on in your life right now. It's based upon this profound certainty of hope that we have through Jesus. So today we're going to be focusing on love, as I said before, and um, as kind of Frank said in the beginning of his sermon, it, for me it was very daunting to try to think about something to say, because love is obviously just a huge topic in the Bible. So with my ADD brain trying to be up there and just trying to pull parts of what love could be, it was really, really hard. Um, number one, for the fact that like the entire Bible is just a narrative of God's love to us, of how... We walked away from him, we separated ourselves from God, but then God walking through this entire process of us getting back to him, which culminated in Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected. Uh, secondly, love is an actual attribute of God. So when we think about uh, God itself, God is love. It's not just that God is loving, it is God himself is love. And so if you want a great book on, on these attributes, A.W. Tozer writes a book called The Attributes of God. I suggest that you read it. It's really, really good. But the whole point of it is that there's nothing outside of God directing him to be able to say, okay, well, God is loving, so he has to act this way. No, God himself is love. So whatever he does is loving. So that's kind of where we get that from. Um, now, how we're going to look at love today is going to be through communion. Um, and that's communion with God, with each other, and then ultimately communion through the communion table. And so Courtney and Jenny are going to be here to help me just kind of read a couple different scriptures as we head into our main text in Luke 22. John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has a greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. And this is such a beautiful call to love others as a response to his love, the love that was freely given to us. I really like the, the, the last verses here in 16. He comes down and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go out and produce fruit. So that, that fruit that we're supposed to produce is going to be imitating the love that he has given to us. Um, it's great. He, one of the things he says, and I really want to point out here, he says, I don't call you servants anymore. You're no longer a servant subjected to something. I am calling you friends because I'm inviting you into my family. And so this is just an amazing picture of Christ coming down. And because of that, our response is to love him and to love others. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul here is expounding on the words that we, we heard in John. And what's interesting, John is now looking at this from a perspective, knowing what's already happened, knowing about the, the, the suffering and, and death of Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, Paul had his own conversion by meeting Jesus in a, in a famous story on the road to Damascus where he came running to him and he was blinded by this white light. And then you know, Jesus goes up to him and says, Paul, Paul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? Or his name was Saul uh, at the time. Um, so it's a great thing. So now he's looking at these words and he's, he's relearning all these things that he's heard throughout the scriptures. And he's looking at it in a very, very particular way. And he's saying, if you look at verse 7 through 9, he says, Jesus himself, he emptied himself, becoming the form of a servant. So just like we heard in John where he says, listen, I don't call you servants anymore because I came down, I became to serve with you, and now because of that, there is this friendship. I call you dear friends. Now, what are we called to do for that? Well, that's what we see in the beginning of the verse. Because of all these things that Jesus did, now we need to make the joy, his joy complete by having that same love 
united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Um, so we have communion with God by abiding with him. We have communion with each other by loving each other in the same way that God first loved us. And we take communion because we want those things, those two things, which we consider the greatest commandment to love God and to, to love others, to guide our attitudes and our inter interactions throughout our entire lives. And the goal of that is what we see in verses 10 through 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So let's kind of, by taking all that stuff, now let's look at our main text here in Luke. So starting Luke uh, 22 and verse 1. Luke 22. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests in the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. So the first thing I want to point out here is that what, what everyone was celebrating was the Passover. Um, and if you don't know what the Passover was, it was a remembrance of the, the, the Jews, the Israelites' deliverance out of Egypt. So if you've even seen the story, The Prince of Egypt, the little Disney animated one, uh, essentially what happens at this point is that you have all these plagues that God is putting down on the Egyptians in order to get the people of, of, of Israel to, to be free. It culminates where um, God instructs um, all the households to um, sacrifice a lamb, to take its blood and to put it on the doorpost of all the buildings. Um, and he said because of that, um, that night he was going to send the angel of, uh, one of the angels of the Lord to come. And any house that didn't have that covering, um, their, the firstborn child was going to die. And I know that's a hard thing to hear, and that's something we can, we can definitely talk about later. But the Passover was the symbol of the angel of the Lord passing over those houses that didn't, uh, didn't have the, the, that had the blood on the doorpost. And so it was very significant. It's something that everybody celebrated. They celebrated often together with neighbors and friends. The entire town would have been um, together celebrating what was to come as a remembrance of what God did for them. Um, the second part I want to point out here, because after it talks about them going and um, talking about the Passover, then it goes into um, Judas and Satan entering Judas in order to ultimately be betray Jesus. And one of the things that I really want to point out with, with kind of this part of the section is that there's always going to be opportunities to not be in position to be in community and in order to, to glorify God and to kind of do essentially kind of what you're commanded to do. Um, Jesus went into a place knowing what was going to happen, knowing that Judas was going to, um, that he was going to turn him in, that he was going to betray him, and that would ultimately lead to his this painful suffering um, and then ultimate death on the cross. And so there's going to be times in life, essentially, where that, those things are going to happen. Um, we believe in the spiritual. We believe that there is, a, there is a God, that we believe in Jesus, we believe in angels. At the same time, we also believe that there's an enemy that's out there to steal, kill, and destroy. And because of that, we do have to be on guard and acknowledge that there's going to be times where um, we are going to have to um, go into situations knowing it's going to be hard, knowing that there's going to be attacks. 
in following Jesus' example to kind of press on um, even though we know that those times can be hard. Verses 7 through 13. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. What's really interesting here is that Jesus actually was the one making the preparations for himself. This is kind of a really kind of random story that's out there. And if you would think about that, if, you were, if you're walking with Jesus, and again, this is the Passover. So there's a lot of people in Jerusalem right now. So the streets are going to be busy. Um, and so you have this task of, hey, I need you to find some place for us to kind of do this meal. This is like one of those last minute tasks where it can be really, really daunting because most people would have picked where they're going to be doing this meal by now. And Jesus is like, hey, I want you to do this. But he says, hey, you're going to see this person carrying this jug. Just follow them home and just say, hey, my master wants to go ahead and have, wants to find a place to do this meal. And he worked it out. That's not something that happens on accident. And so one thing we, we do want to always take away from this is that when Jesus calls us to do something, he is providing a path in order for us to get there. He is putting people in place. And that's really important. That, that should give us hope and courage that as we are carrying out these tasks, we know that Jesus has a, a purpose for it, um, even if it seems insignificant. Verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began, began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Now this, this kind of topic here would have been really, really hard for the disciples to understand. Um, the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah is not something that they would have been taught their entire lives. In fact, in their minds, um, and according to tradition, when the Messiah comes back, he would come back as a conquering king. So much like in Exodus, when um, God destroyed the, the, uh, his enemies, like in the, the Egyptian armies in the Red Sea, something like that was going to happen. Um, they were going to be uh, kind of be relieved of their... Um, of their, the Roman occupation, essentially. Um, they would have this freedom, and they would be this country, and that's not what happened. Um, Jesus came as a baby. Um, he lived a life that would have been beneath most other teachers and rabbis at that time. In fact, he ended up choosing disciples who were not at all qualified to be disciples, and we know that because they were actually working other jobs when Jesus called them. They weren't, they weren't there. They weren't the, the, the best of the best, essentially, to be chosen for disciples. 
And so they really couldn't understand that, that Jesus would have to suffer and die. And we see that also in Matthew 16. So Matthew 16, Jesus tells, he plainly tells the disciples, listen, I'm going to have to die uh, in order for these things to be fulfilled. And Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, hey, guess what? You're not going to die because I'm here. That's not going to happen. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, right? These things are going to have to happen because you don't understand what's going to become. Um, he didn't realize that those events would ultimately bring them to the ultimate communion with God. And then he predicts betrayal. And so he says things like, you know, the one whose hand is with me on the table, and other accounts it says the hand that dips in the bowl with me. This would have been really awkward because they all would have done that at some point in time. Right? So it wasn't like an instantaneous thing. He says it and it's like, oh, their hands are right next to each other. No, all the disciples would have looked back and been like, oh, it could be any one of you guys. And that's pretty much what the attitude was because they started arguing about that. They were arguing about who was the one that was going to ultimately betray Jesus. Verses 24 through 30. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can start to exalt ourselves? You know, we just had this, this period where Jesus says, I am going to suffer, that I'm going to die, that I came as a servant. And now they were talking about, well, who's better? Which one of us is going to be better? Which one is going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father? This is not the first time that they had an argument like this. These things happened, happened often here. But Jesus takes this opportunity, knowing what's about to come, he takes this opportunity to teach about service. That it's not their position, uh, but the fact that they serve each other in the same way that Christ came to serve. That's what makes them great. They are made great, but the sacrifice of um, they are made great because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is amplified in kind of Matthew's account, Matthew 26, um, where he's telling the disciples, all of them, that they're going to fall away. Um, and again, this is another kind of place where Peter steps up and says, no, Lord, even if everyone leaves you, I'm going to be there. Um, and then he just looks at Peter and says, hey, I tell you, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to, you're going to betray me. And... Uh, Kind of hearing this is one of those things that could either be really, really disconcerting for you or can be hopeful. Um, he knew that their faith could not stand on its own. So if you think about that, these are people that walked with Jesus. They heard everything Jesus had to say. They saw all the miracles. They saw people being raised from the dead. They saw blind people being healed, right? They saw thousands and thousands of people being fed from just a couple of baskets of food. And yet their faith would fail in very dire moments. And again, that, that can be very disconcerting, especially for someone like myself who always feels like they fail, that they're not good enough, that they make mistakes. But what's important to know is that we, even though we all have times that we fail over and over, it's important to know that we were never meant to carry that burden. Our faith was never meant to be the driving factor in our relationship with Christ. 
Jesus and in his faith and in his love and his coming to us is essentially what gives us the ability to have that closeness, to have that relationship with him. That's why in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The power of the cross is made perfect in our weakness. Because if we don't have weakness, the, the cross has no significance for us. But the power of the cross is made perfect because we are weak and we need that. And so what is, what is our response to all of this, everything that we just read? Matthew 22, 37 to 39. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. So um, George asked me to share my thoughts on this scripture and what came to mind was actually something he said this week, which was it's good for his health to be involved in sports because in his mind, in his heart, in his body, are all working together towards the same goal. And what came to mind to me was, well then worship should be all the more because our minds, our bodies, our spirit, soul, and our emotions are all coming together to work toward the same goal, to love the Lord. And how much love from the Lord that to lift him up, to raise him up is actually healing for our bodies, healing for our design. Um, so our response to love him, again, comes back and blesses us, and it's this cycle. Cycle of love him, love us, love him, love us, receive love, give love. And then the second is to love each other as we love ourselves. Well, that's also healing, to be in community, to be bouncing off our hurts and our pains and our joys off of each other, to be celebrating with each other, to be weeping with each other. The Lord's design is a healing design. Amen. Amen. John 4, 21 through 24. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship that what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. George also asked me to respond to this text. The context for this passage is that this is the Samaritan woman at the well that both longed for everlasting life through the eternal water that Jesus was offering her, while at the same time living in a life of sin, having had five husbands, and the one she currently was with not being her husband, which Jesus lovingly called out in her life without her telling him. Because of this, she calls him a prophet, and after this passage, she says, a Messiah is coming, and this is a pivotal moment in which Jesus confirms he indeed is the Messiah the prophets have foretold of. 
Jesus also claims to be Jewish here by identifying as part of the we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And he says that the salvation, the eternal life he offered here, her at this well, comes through the Jews as prophesied. He is inviting Gentiles into this worship of the Father through him as the Messiah, the living water. He speaks to the incredible privilege we have now to worship God, not at the Jewish temple with sacrifices, but rather for the believer, we can commune with him anytime and any place by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the wonderful ability of being able to commune with God because of the true work that Jesus has already done on our behalf. Believing that his word is true and that he lived the perfect life we could not has paid for our sins with his own blood shed on the cross for us as the ultimate sacrifice and rose from death to life so that we too would be able to share in his resurrection. God's true word, the scripture, reveals we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and he shows us this so clearly with the love he shows this woman entering into her world, knowing all she had done, and yet she still is offer he still is offering her eternal life to quench the thirst that we all have, to be known and to know that our creator and to live with him for eternity. Amen. First John 4, 7 through 19. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one that doesn't love does not know God because God is love. God was revealed among us in this way that God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, love consists in this, not that we love God. Say that again. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we may also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If, if we love one another, God remains in us. And his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we need to remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and remains in love excuse me, uh, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and the one uh, who, doo -doo -doo, one who has confidence in the day of judgment. And I'm sorry, like I completely lost myself. I forgive, forgive me. Um, and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love again because he first loved us. And if you think about everything that was read, about loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your spirits, the response of Jesus coming to us in such a radical way, calling us into his family, even though when, when most people would have been turned away, as Jenny said, of this woman at the well who was by herself, obviously in the middle of the day, because no one wanted to be seen with her. It is that Jesus that came down, that emptied himself in order to commune with us. And this is why um, we do communion, ultimately. 
Um, I'm going to talk, we're going to do communion a little bit differently um, compared to how we've done it in the past. Usually, um, you would have received the communion element by now, uh, but as of, as of right now, we're going to do it a little bit different. So, Andrew and Jen, they're going to be in the back, and um, they're going to actually have the elements themselves. Um, and then what I'm going to ask you to do as we're, as we're going through this process, it's going to be elongated. There's going to be some extra songs sung today. Um, I would actually ask you to kind of go up through the middle and on your own pace, just kind of grab those elements. Um, and as you grab those elements, take some time back to pray. If you want to pray with someone else, feel free. If you want to grab somebody uh, up here, feel free to do that as well too. And we just want to take a time of truly remembering everything that God has done for us. Take time to pray. Take time to sing and to worship. And the last thing I want to say here is just, um, if, you, if you look at kind of the current um, process of, of, of the Passover celebration. It's, it's called the Seder. Now, there's a tradition in there that's, that's very unique, is that they, they do have these four cups that are drank from. Um, the cups are is the cup of sanctification, and a lot of times this cup is drank because of God's statement, I will bring you out from the, the burdens of, of the Egyptians. There's the cup of deliverance uh, upon God's statement that I will deliver you from slavery. There's a cup of redemption, um, with God, based upon God's statement of, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then there's the cup of praise. And this is a, res a praise in response to God saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. But there's a fifth cup. It's called Elijah's cup. Um, and it's a cup that's set aside that's untouched. And it's to symbolize that Elijah will drink of it when he comes to herald the advent of the Messiah. Now, church, this has already happened. The Messiah has already come. That cup is the cup that we celebrate today. We don't just celebrate something that just happened in the past, and we don't just celebrate something that we hope to come, but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is for us right now as well. It's to give us that same type of power and hope and ultimate peace into our lives. And because of what Jesus did for us, we can have that same type of love for those around us as well. So as we pray right now, and as we move into communion, um, I pray that you would keep that, that same mind and that same attitude and remembering everything that Jesus did for you and everything that he wants to continue to do for you.